Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 3. We're continuing in our series, going through this Old Testament narrative book, the story of the second king of Israel and the far better of the two at this stage. And if you weren't here last week, we reached at that time the part where David has come to an accord. He has reached a peace agreement with the de facto, the real leader of the other tribes. There's a man named Ishbosheth, the son of the former King Saul, who's reigning basically as a puppet king, but the real power is a general named Abner. And Abner has just come to an agreement with David that he's going to bring those other tribes back into loyalty to David. We looked at some of what that means and the desire that we have ultimately to see Christ's kingdom brought under his authority as an image, as David was an image of Christ to come. And it's at this point that we pick up where Abner has agreed this is what he's going to do, and now he's going to go out. So let's hear the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 21. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he has gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, and to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, He sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his that is Joab's brother. Afterward, When David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Thus ends the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his wisdom and blessing. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word, and we stand before it knowing that we have need of your guidance. We ask not only that you would work upon our minds to have clear understanding of your desire in light of all the scripture, but we pray that you would work within our hearts more and more of the formation of the image of Christ, that we would become like our Savior. We pray that you would show us his reflection, even as we are in this passage, For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Think about the difference for a moment between two kinds of objects. The difference between a lens and a well-cut jewel. Typically, the function of a lens is to focus light in one area. The function, however, of cutting all of those various facets in a jewel is so that when you hold it up to the light, you see light coming out all over the place. It refracts light out of all those various facets. There are portions of the Bible and some of the narratives in the Bible that function a lot like a lens. And that's God's purpose for them. That is, they shed light on one particular issue in a very clear, very illuminating way. Often, though, especially when you are in the narratives, in these stories in the Bible, it is more like a well-cut jewel. That is, God in his providence has so governed the circumstances that occurred in history and how it's related in scripture, which details are in there, that you are able to hold these complex, messy situations up to the light of the word And then to see refracted out all kinds of insight, not just one lesson, but many lessons. And so as you work through the narratives of the Bible, it's very important that we not rush through, but that we really savor them and we discover many different lessons. Here in this passage, for instance, you can make a whole litany of them and studying for this, I encountered quite a few. For instance, just the lesson that God's judgment is sometimes delayed. For a long time. Joab commits murder here, and it will be decades before he gets his comeuppance. And some people never get it in this life, and yet God will be just. Or you take the difficulty of managing ungodly people. David knew all about that. He is a man after God's own heart, trying to manage a kingdom, and many of the people that he is over do not faithfully serve him, and how hard that is. Think of that for you when maybe you have an unbelieving child, or maybe you are an employer, or maybe you work alongside of and you have to manage people who are not believers. Or you could see how the best laid plans can be overthrown in a moment. Abner thinks very confidently, I am going to do these things. I'm going to go out. I'm going to gather everyone. I'm going to hand the kingdom over to David. And David might have put his confidence in Abner, but that would be misplaced. His confidence must be in the Lord, not people. God may use people, and he calls us to act in order that we might be instruments. But even somebody like an Abner, a great person in the prime of life, is sometimes, by the Lord's will, taken off. And so there are many different lessons here. This evening, we are going to give the majority of our attention to one lesson in particular. Lessons surrounding different standards of severity. When I say severity, I mean how hard you are in responding to others who you feel have done wrong, or maybe have done you wrong. 
or the standard that you use to judge others in their severity? What are you going to approve of, say, in the way that leaders respond, or maybe a crowd responds to what they think is right or wrong? God's word is given for us to have wisdom in order that we might live in a way that pleases him. First and foremost, this is not life coaching. This is about God receiving glory for lives that conform to the image of Christ. And in this passage, we're going to see that our King Jesus has a standard for severity. And it's even reflected here, these different standards in verse 39, if you look a little bit lower in the text. David says, verse 39, I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruah, speaking of Joab and Abishai, are more severe than I. David has one standard of severity, and then they have another standard. And it naturally brings up the question, what is your standard? And what is the standard that God uses? And what will be the outcome if you live by a different standard? There's no question that the Lord condemns the standard that Joab was using here. Several times it's reiterated. Here in David's words in verse 39, the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So this evening, the Lord is challenging you as you think through how do you respond? How does your anger or your desire for justice manifest itself in the world? Is your standard of severity submitted to that of Christ and of the gospel? As we look at this, we're going to do so under two main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. Basically, we're going to look at the standard that Joab and his accomplices used, see what that says. And then we're going to look at the standard that David has, and really ultimately that Christ has. Beginning then with examining Joab's severity. There's no question that what he does is very severe. He puts this man Abner to an excruciating, humiliating, immediate death. And he does it with his own hands in a way that will bring shame upon this general Now, why does he do it? He does it, in a word, according to verse 30, for the sake of his brother. That is, maybe you aren't familiar with the story. We covered it some time past. Abner had fought with Asahel, the brother of Joab, in battle. In fact, Abner was doing everything he could to get away from Asahel. And he ended up even only using the back end of his spear. All of these things point to this being self-defense. And in the process, Asahel dies. Joab does not let it go. He will have blood from Abner for it. Now, it's tempting, if you're familiar with the story, if you've been with us for some time in this, it's tempting to perceive a kind of poetic justice here. Because Abner is probably not innocent of many things. He has a whole truckload of his own sins, and it's difficult to imagine people in high positions of power don't. We might think that we would do so well until we are given so much authority, so much responsibility. And he had been in charge of the opposing side during a war against the people that we know, hindsight, reading the Bible, God's chosen king. And so it's easy to look at this and say, well, he really got what was coming to him. Imagine that following our American Civil War, somebody had killed General Lee like this. Imagine, to put it in perspective, there's differences, obviously, but in terms of authority, significance, imagine that 
at the courthouse as they were striking agreements that Grant calls Lee back. He says, hey, I just have something I have to say to you. It's, it's confidential. And stabs him in the gut with a knife and kills him. That's what has happened here. And don't you imagine there would have been quite a few people on the side of those saying, well, he got what was coming to him. David does not hesitate to condemn this. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. God can use all kinds of means to bring about judgment, but we are still to stand against sin wherever it appears. Now, what makes this so sinful? There are a lot of different things that make it sinful here. One, his desire for revenge is so pronounced that he is willing to undermine David in front of everyone, the anointed king. And if your desire to be severe causes you to forget all relationships and authority, whether in the home, in the workplace, if you work in the government, if you throw all that out in order to accomplish your desire to have revenge, you're clearly outside of God's will for you. Then there's his willingness to deceive and to betray. If you're des- you say, well, it's for justice. But if you're deceiving, you're in sin. You're on the wrong path. If God does want justice, it's certainly going to be some other way. And then he draws his own family, friends, and subordinates into this plot. Again, if your desire to have at someone moves you to bring other people into the sin, it is wrong. I remember in junior high, this was something I observed. I saw a child leave his lunch, walk away to go do something or another. While he's gone, another child who is much bigger reached into that kid's lunchbox and took a big old bite out of his sandwich. They were not friends. It was meant to be mean. And when the first child came back and saw that his lunch had been eaten... He was offended. He asked who did it. They all pointed at that kid. And he said something like, well, why didn't he eat the tomatoes too? And he took the tomato out and rubbed it in the kid's hair. And then that kid spat in his face. And I kid you not, first child took out a pencil and tried to stab the kid in the leg. The next day, three brothers who were in high school came to my junior high and beat up the kid. Where does it end? When your standard of severity is not limited by anything, not limited by God's law, it just goes up and up and up, and now you can do whatever. You can bring in other people. Don't say that would never happen to you. The only reason it won't happen to you is if you are submitted to God's law. But here, at the bottom, what's worst here is that Joab's severity is only under his own law. He will be a law to himself. And once you are a law to yourself, all other sins are on the table. There are other layers to just how heinous this is that helps to explain why David comes down with a curse calling on God to bring basically the litany of curses described for covenant breakers in Deuteronomy. Take, for instance, where this murder happens. It happens in the gates at Hebron. When I say the gates of a city, I imagine many children might picture kind of iron bars that just go up and down, the gates of the city. But in the ancient Near East... Typically, the gates would feature a whole complex of official buildings. This is where customs are taken. This is where they would have fortifications, so a lot of different rooms. This is the government building in many towns. 
They didn't have a court building in many cities as we think of it. A lot of that judgment, like it says that Job judged in the gates, takes place there. So this is a murder happening in the halls of justice. Somebody saying to anyone else who enters those places, your cause is not safe here if you're against me. And then on top of that, this was a city of refuge. Hebron is a city of refuge. If you don't know what that means, God, under the Old Covenant, appointed a certain number of cities geographically spread out so that if somebody was guilty of manslaughter, that is, they killed somebody but they didn't mean to, they could flee to that city and they were to be protected there. And no one was to allow that person to die. There is every reason to believe that there was no intention on the part of Abner to kill Asahel. And here, of all places, he would have probably felt, I'm safe here. You know, maybe I don't totally trust Joab, but they made a peace agreement. I'm safe here. And the audacity of Joab to kill in that place. Do not think that your sin could not take you in that direction too. Circumstances matter much, but if we in the small things don't limit ourselves, that gives us some indication of what we would do in the larger things as well. Finally, he's willing to throw the entire nation almost back into civil war. As people think that, it, wouldn't they, it's so natural, and we'll see this a little bit in our next sermon in the series, Lord willing, wouldn't they think this was David's doing? David must have called for this. Wouldn't that happen in our own governmental situation too? If the leader of the opposing side suddenly dies, you'd say, probably the guy at the top was behind that. And suddenly, disunity among God's people. And this happens as well among us when our own standard prevails. It ends up sowing distrust among everyone. So the Lord calls us to push back against that. Hear what it says in Proverbs 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 29, 11. Do you hold it back all the time for everything? Is there no severity at all? Here's where we need, as our second and final main division, to look at the king's standard of severity. And we're going to look at David's primarily, and the reason for that, although he's imperfect, and later on in his life he's going to fall hard in something similar. As a rule, he is described as a man after God's own heart, especially in how he relates to Israel. And in that way, he is a picture of Christ to come. He's imperfect, but he's a good paradigm. So we have to ask, what was his standard of severity when he says, we've already seen he says, that I was gentle, though anointed king. He's drawing attention to something here. In the first place, he knew that it was within his power to try to purge out Abner. That is, he had the ability, could have done it, had he wanted to. We're not talking right or wrong here, we're just talking power. He knew that he could have done it, and he was not a stranger to severity. David is not squeamish about taking life. This is a person who, when he was a young man, probably his early teens, probably right around 16 years old, literally severs the head of Goliath, defeats him in battle, It's one thing to take a shot at somebody from a distance. He literally cut the head off a person. 
David doesn't kid around. He can be severe. He's a man familiar with warfare at a time that, unless we're actually looking at combat today, we would think, oh, the world used to be barbaric. David is familiar with severity. But there are two things that limit David's severity from becoming just pure vengefulness. Two things that limit it from becoming vengefulness. As a general rule, it's reflected in the words in Psalm 119, written by David, speaking to the Lord, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. In other words, he is submitting to God's law as the standard for his severity. Where God says, be severe, he must be severe. Where God says, withhold, restrain, he must restrain. David understands in light of the scripture that power is not the same thing as authority. And I think it's very important for us, especially as citizens in a country who are familiar that there is civil authority, to recognize that distinction. Power does not equal authority. Authority is authority. Authority comes from God. It has to do with what he institutes. Power, when not committed rightly to submitting to authority, becomes tyranny, despotism. And you can talk about that on the big scale, but that exists also on the personal scale, right? You become a tyrant when your power, I know that I can slap this person, is not wedded to authority. Do I have authority to slap this person? As image bearers of the Lord, your neighbors belong to him. You think of the coins that our government claims, which bear an image of a person. And Jesus makes that point. He says, you as image bearers of God, you bear God's image. You can't then mistreat those who bear his image. Now, to be clear, there are times that the Bible says we must be severe, even to the point of death. An unpopular statement in many circles today. Ecclesiastes 3.3 says there is a time to kill. Romans 13 says that the magistrate is God's servant for good, which means that he can't use his power for evil legitimately. But it also says that he does not hold the sword in vain. Notice it doesn't simply say he holds the keys to a jail cell in vain. The purpose of the sword in that image is the right, even to the point of death, to stand over others. And yet there are limits. For instance, Genesis chapters 8 and 9 describe that God sets a limit on, for instance, if somebody takes the life of another person willfully, murder, that blood is required for them. That's not simply about, that's not to teach them a lesson. It is to make a statement about the authority of God to enter in among us and draw a line at what can exist in a society. God has final say there. Also, instances like self-defense or protecting the lives of others from death or kidnapping. You see this with the godly man, Abraham. Abraham, a man of faith. We can read about in Genesis how when Lot and many others, Lot is one of his relatives, when he's kidnapped and taken away, Abraham raises up a group of about 400 men armed, goes after and delivers. And the Lord comes and greets and commends him after. Lord doesn't come and say, oh, you should have you know, found a peaceful way to negotiate. If there is, praise God, but there is also a time to kill. In the case of defense of your life or someone else, again with Abner and Asahel, Abner is doing everything he can to protect himself and to flee. 
And so you have on that one hand, submitting to God's law. And I'm going to the ultimate instances here, obviously, of life and death, because that's what Joab is doing here. But you have to search the scriptures, and I commend it to you as a point to study. What is an appropriate use of severity at every level? This gets down to children playing at the playground and how you, maybe as parents, aunts, uncles, friends of the family, will counsel them when they say what they did. How do we draw the line? Jesus says that if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. And I would posit to you that in that context, he's talking about personal offenses, not life and death. It says in Proverbs, it's the glory of a person to overlook a slight God finds that glorious because he does it all day long. Second, I said that there are two things that limit David. One is the law of God, but then second is the goodness of God, the patience of God that David had experienced. If God was severe with David as he deserved, would David live? If God should mark our iniquities, who could stand, says David? How much more when we look at the mercy that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ, he who knows everything, and yet he's patient with you. And so the Lord is calling us tonight to several things, several things as a response. By way of conclusion, I'm going to lay them before you. First is this, foremost, thank God that in the gospel, he has given to you a son of David, not a son of Zeruiah. Jesus doesn't come to you like a Joab and thank God or else you'd be doomed. If it was simply about, I'm going to get them because they've wronged me. We have wronged Christ so many times. His blood poured out for us and we know it and we take communion and then a week later we're doing something and we know, why am I doing this? Or maybe we don't even say that. We say, I'm going to do it. But the Lord shows mercy. Even as David says, I am gentle, though anointed king. We can say of Christ, he has been gentle to us. We thank the Lord for giving us such a king. Second, recognizing, however, that as king, he will not turn a blind eye to our sin. He does chasten his own. And those who stand outside of faith in Christ will receive their comeuppance. We must restrain our severity. I invite you to turn with me and look at Matthew chapter 7. In the gospel, these are words of Jesus. In terms of how do you restrain your severity, and this is a very practical struggle, and it's one that requires that you cut a groove first before you are in the situation where you get mad. You have to have the groove first. The channel's already there. The water will go that way. Once the floodgate goes, you need that channel for your anger to already be in place. And the channel that we need is first to understand how the Lord relates to us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now in the immediate context there, he's talking about, among many things, where people have their own standard of righteousness, and they look at somebody else who is failing in some way, and they say, well, that person must not be acceptable before the Lord, but they have their own fault. 
But the measure you use, if you wish to be judged by the law, by your perfection, that will be upon you. And so we relate to the Lord in terms of grace, through faith alone, that we are counted righteous. But also in terms of the standard that we use for our severity, because what is the function of severity? As those who've been created in God's image, one of the many things, one of the potentialities that is amazing about being a human is the possibility of becoming a vessel of justice as appropriate. God has not appointed, say, ordinarily speaking, they certainly aren't conscious of the fact, lions, tigers, and bears to be his agents of justice. They don't sit in court over us. God has given you a high responsibility. But if your standard of severity is based on, I will be a law to myself, if we say like that person in the beginning of Genesis who says, I was struck and I killed him, then we become worthy. We give indication that we have not tasted of the grace of the Lord. Again, to be clear, some acts cannot be overlooked, especially if you are in a position of authority. A private offense, it's a beautiful thing privately to show leniency and grace to someone. We're not talking about defending your life here. But where, for instance, Paul says, if somebody has robbed you, why don't you just let them win the suit if you are brothers together? If that's simply you privately, it becomes more complicated when that person's trying to deprive from others too, or when that person's attack is upon others or upon society at large. And then we read in Proverbs that it is an evil judge who does not bring justice against the wicked. There are times when we must pursue, and we'll see that more in the next sermon. But here, as advice to you, it's a simple question. Ask yourself, for whose sake am I so angry? For whose sake am I so angry? And what am I trying to accomplish in this anger? If it's for you and your own feeling good, this is not of the Lord, brothers and sisters. All of us are susceptible. I saw this, you know, the Lord sometimes, I don't think that life changes per se as you're preparing to teach on something. I think you just become more perceptive of what's going on all around you all the time. Walking my dog just this past week. And as I'm walking my dog, I'm coming around the block and a person is backing out of their driveway. And right at that moment, somebody else comes around the corner and they're going way too fast. They're coming around the corner and they have to stop suddenly as this person who's almost completely backed out. And the one who had to stop then forces their way kind of up onto the curb and goes around them. They're going to go. I'm not saying who's right or wrong. What I do know is there was a whole lot of severity because the person who had been backing out suddenly probably needs to prove that's not going to fly in our neighborhood and goes flying after them. Flying after, and I see him just pursue him after they left our neighborhood. I have no idea what happened from there. For whose sake were they angry? What were they trying to accomplish? Are they trying to accomplish greater safety in my neighborhood by flying after them? No. They're trying to terrify somebody. You don't do that to me. That attitude is not of Christ. He was meek. How many? Well, you did flip over tables and whip some people. That's true. How often? You have one story for all the multitude of times. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in mercy. And we come to that by looking at what we have received. 
and by looking to his promise. Hear this promise, and then we'll pray. Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Think about that in the midst of your severity. If that person genuinely needs judgment, the Lord is going to bring it about. And what of the possibility that that person is a believer, or is elect, and is going to come to faith? You are going to spend eternity in union joyfully with that person. The Lord has not called you to be the angel of death. He's called you to be a minister of the gospel and of righteousness. Let's ask him to help us with that then. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, and we confess before you that we struggle sometimes, sometimes very deeply with anger and the desire to punish people without having any thought of your law and will. We ask that you would please adjust our standards so that we would not offend you and what we approve of in others either. Your word says in Exodus that you shall not fall in with many people to do evil, nor shall you side with many so as to pervert justice. We ask that you would please help us to disapprove of evil means that are used, even if the end seems to fit our desires. We pray, Lord, that you would cause your people more and more to reflect the meekness, not the weakness of Christ. We ask that you would help us to string our pride upon the bow of humility and for the strength of your spirit to do it. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.